You're listening to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Professor of Christian Ethics here at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today we're with uh, Dr. Ron Boyd McMillan, who is the Director of Global Strategy and Research for Open Doors International, which if you're not familiar with Open Doors, is the ministry to the persecuted church around the world, one of the most prominent parachurch organizations that serves the persecuted church around the world. Uh, Ron, thank you for being with us. We're delighted to have you uh, with us on the podcast today. I'm delighted to be here and to spend some time with you, too, and just chatting. Now, our, our listeners may have picked up a bit of an accent. So tell us a little bit about where, where you grew up and uh, sort of what your heritage is. We're actually all Scots, but we're, I was raised in Northern Ireland, in Belfast actually, at the height of the Troubles in the uh, 60s and 70s. And then I was educated in England, and I lived in Holland and uh, Hong Kong and Los Angeles, and I've married an American. So my accent is all over the place, really. And whatever you think it is, you're probably right. <laughs> Can you tell us just for a brief moment, I know this is not the subject of our discussion today, but I think our listeners would be very interested to know what that was like to be raised in Northern Ireland in the 70s and during that time of such tumult and uproar. It was, as a teenager, I think you sleepwalk through history. You just don't know what's going on. Uh, Your world is small and you're only worried about what people think of you. And... uh, So I didn't notice what was really going on. It was a world of total segregation. I went to a Protestant school. I never met a Roman Catholic the whole time I was in Northern Ireland. I only started to meet them when I traveled around. So you just lived in a ghetto, and of course anything that was said about those outside the ghetto, you just believed. It was the air you breathed. And uh, so it, it, it felt strange, really looking back, but I belonged, my father was a minister in a big church, a big independent church, big for Belfast anyway, about 800 people. And uh, it was a a, a wonderful formation for me because most of, it was a very working class church. Most of the people worked in the shipyard. There's a big big, uh, shipyard there called Harlan and Wolf. They built the Titanic actually. And uh, and these were hard-drinking, hard-living men. And they had basically, you know, they were drunkards and they beat their wives. And every, and they would be wonderfully saved. And uh, you would hear them give their testimony pretty much every week. And you just always saw Christianity works. But it didn't mean that we weren't bigoted. Yeah. Because, you know, if somebody had come into the church and they had said, what's your name? Oh, I'm, I'm Mr. O'Flaherty. That would tell you right away. They'd chase them off. Yeah. You know, so I've always had this sense that, that the church is a mess, but sometimes it's, it's a, but it manages to be a kind of effective mess. You know, my expectations are not so high that everybody has to, has to be just right. So you, you experienced, uh, from what you saw, redemption being partial. Yes. And in some areas, awaiting the Lord's return. Yes. For other areas. Um, now, look. You you have written a lot on the persecuted church. Your book uh, that I like to make sure our listeners uh, have brought to their attention, uh, Faith That Endures, The Essential Guide to the Persecuted Church, is, I, I think, I've looked at that, and it's sort of, it's, I would refer to that as the, sort of the, if you want one resource on the persecuted church that has everything you need to know all in one place, that's the book that uh, 
you, you ought to go to. So tell us a little bit about uh, how, how what what your your research was like uh, that went into the book, and and I know you do a lot of the research that has to do with the World Watch List as well. So tell our listeners a bit about the World Watch List as well. I was trying to give the biggest possible picture in terms of understanding persecution. So the book was was answering certain key questions. What is persecution? Um, where is it going on? What's driving it? Um, how do you do something about it? And perhaps the most significant question of them all is what can we learn from the persecuted? I was conscious that particularly Western Christians see the persecuted as needing their resources. Well, that's true, they do. We do have to send them help. But we also, I believe, have to receive their treasure because they have discovered something about God in their experience that we need in our own. And so I wanted to build that, a kind of umbilical and and discipleship connection between the life of the persecuted church and the life of the Western church. Sounds rather grand, but but that was was one of the the reasons for writing the book. So let's be a little more specific. Uh, What what specific things have you discovered that the Western Church especially needs to learn from our brothers and sisters who are in other parts of the world where persecution is pretty rampant? Well, once I had an interaction with the great Wang Mingdao, he was a perhaps the most significant figure of Chinese Christianity of the 20th century. And uh, he'd spent 23 years in jail for his faith and in solitary confinement much of it. And I remember meeting him and uh, I said, you know, I can't relate to you, you know. I go back to Britain and I don't want to feel guilty for, for not being persecuted like you because people died to give me my, my freedom. Um, so he thought, I said, you know, how do I relate to you? So he thought for a minute and he said, well, when you go back, how many articles do you have to write? Oh, maybe 10. How many appointments do you have in the first month? How many uh, people do you have to see? And he came, asked me all these questions about my schedule. I began to sweat. I think, oh, I need to get out of here right now and get back and do all this. And then he just looked at me and he said, you need to build yourself a cell. And he said, you see, I was put in jail when I was 60. Now, in China, you're at the peak of your powers at 60. And he said, I, I was a famous evangelist. I wanted to have meetings all around the country. I wanted to make records, I had a wonderful singing voice, I wanted to write books. said, I was put in jail and I couldn't do any of that. Couldn't read my Bible, didn't give me one, couldn't write, no pen and paper, couldn't speak to anybody, food was just pushed through the door. And he said, all I had to do was to get to know Christ. And he said, that over time became the sweetest relationship of all. But he said, I had to realize that up till then, I was this very powerful, famous Christian but I had served God entirely as a master, even as an emperor. He was my emperor, but he was not my friend. And he said, that's what you'll find persecution does. It's not great in and of itself. It's a simplifying force that strips life away of all its distractions so that it's you and Christ. And that's the key relationship. And so he said, build yourself a cell. You know, you can't, I was pushed into one. You'll have to build yourself one. And I said, well, what does that look like? He says, anything that that simplifies life so that it's just you and Christ, even if it's just a a technique that you use to go into a a dark room or something like that for an hour a day. That's the idea. Um, And he left me with this wonderful word. He said, you know, 
the key to life is to go at walking pace, he would always say. And I said, why? He said, because God loves his garden. And what he meant was, wouldn't it be a pity if this beautiful world in which we live in, this kind of Eden, fallen though it is, uh, what, wouldn't it be a shame if we ran through this garden serving God and didn't walk in the garden enjoying God? That was his great. So I've always kept that and, and I've tried in my life to have a daily rhythm where I slow down, I simplify, I build myself a cell and the focus has to be on actually finding God to be a friend. So there's, it sounds like there's a pretty significant connection between what uh, the men and women, our brothers and sisters, who are trusting Christ in areas where persecution is high, they develop a level of intimacy with Christ that we find a lot harder to replicate here. Yes, they can. I mean, sometimes I don't want to idolize them or, or say they're all, you know, super saints. They're not. And a lot of people you know, give up and and are wearied by it all. But their ultimate challenge, I think, I remember another Chinese pastor said, you and I may not sit on the same thorn. You know, I'm on a very sharp thorn and it's it's very painful. You're not on that thorn. But we do sit on the same branch, he would say. And what he meant by that was that if you think of persecution in a biblical sense, all it really is is just a verb. It means to be pursued. And when you become allied to Christ, the forces that are in the world that don't like Christ are then after you. That's all persecution means in a biblical sense. And so he says, look out for it, accept it, and maybe even uh, receive it as an honor. Let me, the, uh, the World Watch List is something that Open Doors publishes on an annual basis. It'll be released here in a few weeks. Uh, and you contribute, I think, significantly to the research that goes into the World Watch List. Tell our listeners a little bit about w- what exactly is the World Watch List and what are the criteria that you use to identify the levels of persecution, sort of who, that, that place different countries in the positions they are on that list. It's a ranking of the 50 countries in the world where it is hardest to practice Christianity. And we uh, use a certain questionnaire with a methodology that expresses our broad understanding of persecution. So we talk about squeeze and smash. Most people, when they think of persecution, they think of a violent incident. That's true. That's there. But actually, if you look at where the violence is, you, you often find that that masks um, more significant persecution that doesn't hit the headlines. So we talk about squeeze and we say, how much freedom do you have to express your faith in, say, your private life or your church life or your community life or your national life or your congregation? These areas um, are are all uh, measured by us. Um, Are you allowed to have a cross on the wall? Could you have a Christian poster on your home? Could you have a Bible in your home? If you don't, then uh, that's that's a hard a hard squeeze, and it it reflects the fact that the persecutor doesn't really want to stop you being a Christian. He wants to stop you being a witnessing Christian. And so the squeeze is ten times more effective than the violence. We measure that, and that's why that's and we put those two scales together to come up with how difficult it is to live out a Christian faith 
in in a particular context. That's a really interesting distinction you make between someone who just practices their faith privately and a witnessing Christian. So w- would it be fair to say that that many of the governments and organizations that persecute the church around the world would actually be content with a strictly private faith? Yes, yes. That, not not everyone. North Korea, for example, uh, you really have to be worshipping the, the cult of Kim Il-sung. Um, you're not allowed to uh, um, have a, a private life away from that. But in a lot of other countries, uh, yes, the church is allowed to exist, but keep it to yourself. Keep it underground. Keep it, keep it quiet. Or what happens in a lot of the Islamic countries is, yes, you're Christians, you're ethnic Christians. You can stay in the land on one condition only. You never, ever evangelize a Muslim. And that's the deal. You know? And the danger is, over time, over centuries, it then results in Christians who feel second class. Yeah, because they can never really belong in that society. So in some of these Muslim countries then, I mean, you, you also, you're a professor of practical theology in, at a school in Pakistan. So you've spent considerable time in the Middle East and the Muslim world. Uh, can, you, can you give us sort of a, sort of a general sort of state of the church in the Middle East? Well, they say, if you think of Islamic extremism, it has always had what they call two tap roots. Um, it is funded by Saudi money. The Saudis are the most extremist Islamic regime in the world. And they have all the more, money to push it, to sponsor more, it. More so than, than Iran or Somalia or... Well, yes, it's tight. You know, I mean, they are, they are forms of... But Wahhabism is really this, one of the strictest forms of, of, of Islam. And, uh, and so they, they will only give aid around the world insofar as, you know, well, it must come with a mosque and we have to send the teacher for that mosque and this kind of thing. You're seeing that all over Africa. They tend to fund extremism. But if you want to learn to be a violent extremist, you have to go to Pakistan. And in the madrasas in the north of the country particularly, that's where you get taught how to use weaponry and and let off bombs and that sort of thing. Those are the two tap roots of Islamic extremism. People talk about ISIS all the time. ISIS is really more... Um, a, a very bloody caliphate that is quite temporary. I mean, it's already starting to get to, to get pushed back, um, and uh, perhaps in five years' time there will be no more area in the Middle East where you have ISIS controlling a territory. Um, but that was never really the main uh, pressure on, on Christians. It was really Islamic extremism funded by the Saudis and and uh, the the Pakistani well, the Pakistani arena is the place where you you learn how to be violent. That's the that we're not, we're not even touching. You know, if you get rid of ISIS, it doesn't make any difference to those two tap roots. Okay, so it will just, in your view, it will just manifest itself in a different form in different organizations, regardless of. What, what what else comes and goes in the region? Yes, uh, I mean it's just this ideology. Uh, it's not all Muslims espouse this, of course, but but there is a, a very strict Islamism. So that, for example, if you are if you were a Saudi and you became a Christian in Saudi Arabia, you had better keep that entirely secret. Or if it is known, you will either lose your head or you have to leave the country. It's as simple as that, and. Uh, and so there may, be, there may be Christians who are Muslims, but they will never, ever express that. 
And so that doesn't count as a, a statistic. You know, they say, you say, oh, well, you know, there's martyrs there, so that must be where their most persecution is. These people are not martyrs, but they have no religious freedom whatsoever. That's how we, we, we count that. So, so you would say in Saudi Arabia, not even a private Christian faith would be allowed? If they're a Saudi, yes. I mean, if you're, because in Saudi Arabia, of course, you have a lot of um, guest workers there who, who would be Christian. A lot of them would be, you know, Pakistanis and Indians and that sort of thing. But uh, they have to, so they get a kind of special dispensation to have their own private views. But a Saudi doesn't have that. But you're, you're, you said you're seeing a lot of Muslims in various parts of the Middle East come to faith in Christ in some pretty striking numbers. Yes, uh, Yes, we, we are seeing something quite remarkable uh, around the world. Um, Muslims are coming to, to, to the Christian faith um, probably in the most significant numbers than ever before. It doesn't mean to say it's statistically significant. You know, I mean, you've got 1.5 or so 1.6 billion Muslims, and, and we're talking less than you know, 2, 3 million worldwide that might be, be coming to Christ. But it is a fact that what we have seen in the Middle East is that where Islamism has increased its power, and it has significantly since the end of the Arab Spring, a lot of Muslims have been looking at Islamism and saying, is that my faith? I'll try something else. And even to the extent where, even Syria, where you hear all these terrible stories, I was speaking to a pastor there just a few weeks ago, and he said, oh, I've had to, I've had to say to my congregation, don't come to church on Sunday. And and I said, oh, that's a shame. He said, no, it's not a shame. He said, I don't want my congregation to take a seat away from a Muslim inquirer. Yes. So I've never seen anything like it. Now, you you do you make a distinction between Islam and Islamism? Yes, I think I think we do. Um, some don't, and I I know that there are you know various views on this, but but I think there is a point at which Islam tips over into. Uh, a level of intolerance that just almost refuses to even accept uh, any rights for religious minorities in the territory and is very prone to, always has this threat of violence in, in the background. That, that's the Islamism, I think, that's, that's, uh, that really drives um, the persecution of Christians. But if all Muslims were violent Islamists, we'd all be dead. So, um, so that can't be... What percentage do you estimate of that 1.6 you know, billion Muslims are Islamists? It's hard to say, but for example, in Pakistan, um, you know, that's a country of over 200 million. It is generally reckoned that violent extremists would constitute 20% of the population. That's huge. Now, that's probably not the case in a lot of other countries. But the thing you've got to watch in Pakistan is that Every time Friday comes along, uh, you've got to be very careful as a Christian because um, what is the mullah going to say at Friday prayers? And if he incites people, then uh, you're going to have your property burned or you're going to have to run for your life or that kind of thing. Every Friday, you're always worrying about that. Now, you, you teach practical theology in a seminary in Pakistan. What is that like teaching, equipping pastors to pastor effectively in a place like Pakistan where persecution is so significant? It is a great privilege. Um, there's no doubt that in a setting like this, uh, 
I would say that, that most pastors have two characteristics. One, they are exhausted. They are absolutely shattered from the stress and pressure of it all, of trying to be a Christian in a society where every day there are a thousand and one humiliations. The other is that they are they they struggle to have hope because they see Islam so dominant, so powerful, and they have been told from their birth that because they're Christian they're second rate. So your job really as a teacher is to teach them the full dignity of what it means to be made in the image of Christ. Lift up their head and give them the space, kind of like we were talking about with Wang Mengdao, give them the space to to slow down and make sure that God is a friend and you're not just serving a master. And uh, But it is wonderful because, you know, they some of these people go out and, and minister in Taliban-dominated areas. And uh, I have to teach them homiletics or preaching. And I, they say, you know, make sure that, that I can preach a sermon so that they don't get the point because I need time to leave before they stone me. <laughs> So I have to come up with parabolic methods of yes. making sure that, that the, the real point will hit later once they've exited the building or the, or the, the market street or whatever. Yeah, that, that, yeah that's actually tragic. Yeah. Uh, but that's something I think here in the U.S. that we have really hard time relating to. So that you have to actually tr- teach preaching in a way that allows the point, the point to hit home later. Yes, especially in, in, in case they have to rush yeah, out. You know, in, in northern Pakistan, in, that would know. be the case. I mean, in a lot of other places, you can you can be quite traditional, but but certainly in the northern areas, that that's where it's very dangerous. I take it that some of these pastors have become your heroes in in recent years. Yes, they have. I think it's just the fact that every time you look into somebody's eyes, and you know that it is part of the normal business of being a preacher or a pastor, that they will have to die. And if they're not going to die physically, although the the chances are quite high, depending on where they're going, uh, they're going to have to die in all other ways. So, in many other ways. So they, they have an understanding of mission in which suffering is central. I think this is really where we need to hear from them, you know, and listen to them. Suffering is central to mission. Of course, it's there in the Gospels. But but we don't we don't see it so much because we've we've defined the Christian life as a kind of adjunct to an affluent lifestyle a little too much, and uh, the idea that that suffering would be part of the package uh, makes us makes us uh, you know think well do I really want this? Uh, why do you think that these I mean these are really compelling stories of what people our brothers and sisters in chains around the world are enduring. Why do you think that these stories have such a hard time getting traction among the church in the West, in the U.S., and in Europe? Well, why? What is, what is delightful about darkness? This is, this is the issue. Um, these are hard stories, and, and people shy away from, from, from suffering, from, from hardship. So what we often find in the Ministry of Open Doors is when we go to churches, they'll say, oh, thank you very much. We'd love to hear about them. Here's a check. But what they're really saying is, now don't come back for two years because this is too tough. It's just too hard, it's yeah. too hard to, yeah. to absorb. Yeah. But it's difficult because the hardest thing I find as a writer um, uh, 
is how do you express this bizarre paradox that the more you suffer, the more joy they feel, the more that joy and suffering go together. But it's almost impossible to to write about that or express that. Certainly, as a proposition, it sounds just ludicrous. As the story really comes with all its its strength and power, I think we might just get an inkling. What the last last question for you? Uh, what are what are some of the things that you're most hopeful about as you minister in Pakistan and serve the persecuted church with open doors? What 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 gives you hope and encouragement? Well, although I wouldn't say it was a hard and fast principle, that I've often seen that that persecution does promote growth. And Pakistan church is still growing hugely. Um, it's only really in the West that we seem to be missing out. The rest of the, ta- the, rest of the world is, is experiencing an amazing revival. And uh, I remember Philip Yancey being asked, you know, why, why is the West missing out? And he just quietly said, well, God goes where he's wanted. And in these places, people love God. They love religion. They love the fact that they're wanting to center life on, on God. And they are, they're anxious and ambitious to make a society much more Christianized. And uh, these are almost ambitions that we're a little embarrassed about, at least certainly from where I come from. I'm from England, uh, or living in England. And, and, you know, the ideal Anglican Christian is somebody that never talks about their faith. They're almost embarrassed. You just you just live it out super quietly. I, this is about my my hardest thing in ministry is to come is to be in Pakistan or to travel around China or Indonesia or somewhere like that and then come home. That's the hardest thing because I'm leaving uh, revival land for a place where Christianity seems to be dying. And in my local church, however nice it is, I seem to be taking God's funeral. Well, it, but I don't want, don't want that to be the last word. Of course not. I mean, I think it, it's, it's, that's my context. I, I think we can revive if we, uh, if we really listen and uh, appreciate the persecuted, but take their treasure seriously. Um, the faith is beautiful. It's also hard. And getting that balance, I think, uh, will bring us joy, but it's a tough joy. Yeah, it sounds like that the that we still have an awful lot to learn from our brothers and sisters in chains around the world. Well, let me let me remind our listeners that uh, please continue to uh, lift up the persecuted church in your prayers. Watch for the World Watch List when it's released here in a few weeks. Um, and Ron, thank you so much for being with us today. This is, I mean, this is it's really it's, this stuff is hard to hear, and I appreciate the the really the sober reality that you brought to us. And that they, I think that's right. There is no delight in darkness. The good news, I think, is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Uh, and that it, you know, when Jesus laid the foundation, he intended for the church to last forever. Yes. It's, so, if you look at the persecuted today, you'll see Christianity works. And uh, even evil gets turned to good. And that's always something that is massively encouraging. Because as you look out in the world, it's a wee bit depressing at the, with the trends and, uh, and so on. But actually, that doesn't stymie God. And the persecuted are there as exhibit A to tell you that even if evil is increasing, it doesn't matter. God's in, on the throne, and he will bring good out of it. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. 
To learn more about us and to find more episodes, go to www.biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.